The following contains descriptions of physical violence, sexual violence, and graphic descriptions of autopsies. This is episode 14 of TGIC Podcast. I'm Jillian. And I'm Izzy. Today we will be covering our first serial killer case. We chose not to do this case before because we were unsure about how to tell the story, so we'll be doing a little bit of a different format today. For suspense purposes, we'll be starting off with talking about the victims and end the episode with an in-depth serial killer profile. So let's get right into it. So... From 1982 to 1984, over 20 men and teenage boys went missing throughout multiple states in the Midwest and southern United States. Many of these cases had similar MOs, likely because they were victims of rampant serial killer or multiple killers functioning throughout the United States. All victims were young men ranging from 14 to 30, and they were all brutally murdered in varying ways. However, they all had one very specific thing in common. Their bodies were all discarded right off the interstate in a forest or deserted area. Deeming these brutal murders the interstate killings. Hey guys, so this is just a really quick editor's note from Izzy. I just wanted to tell you that this episode is a lot more serious, especially in the beginning, than other episodes, and it's a lot more graphic than the ones we've done prior. And the format we're doing is basically that we're going to be listing all 19 or more of the victims of the serial killer at the beginning and I just wanted to let you know that if you want to skip ahead to where we get more to talking about a more generalized version of this and talking about the serial killer himself you can easily skip forward to the timestamp of 1225 if you would not like to hear these very gruesome descriptions of victims. Thanks guys. Okay so now we're gonna get right into the timeline. So, sticking with a different format for today's episode, we'll have a timeline that mainly consists of the victims' names, ages, and manners of death, and sadly for some of these victims that was not truly applicable, but we got as much information on each of them that was possible. And also, since all of these cases were not really high profile, I guess, is that how you would say it? Yeah, um, I guess it's just a little bit more underdone compared to some serial killers. Like, everyone knows Ted Bundy, but this serial killer was a little bit, like, not as well known, so a lot of these victims are a lot less known as well. Yeah, so let's get right into it. So October 12th of 1982, we're going to be talking about Craig Townsend. He was actually the only, one of the only attempted murders by this serial killer. He was 21 years old, and he basically remembers a very small amount of what happened to him. So, he remembers being lured into a car by an unnamed man. Basically, we know that the serial killer basically would say, like, hey, I can drive you to this place, so just get into my car. Like, kind of luring them to be, like, hitchhikers in a way? Yeah, that makes sense. So, he was drugged, beaten, sexually assaulted, and dumped in a field completely exposed. And by exposed, I mean he was completely naked. And he survived, but he had, like, very extensive injuries, and he almost died, not only because of the injuries, but because he also got hypothermia from being literally unconscious in a field for, like, like eight hours. That's terrible. So our next victim was found on March 22nd of 1982, and his name was Jay Reynolds. He was 26 years old. 
He worked in an ice cream shop in Lexington, Kentucky, and he was le he had left home the day before on March 21st, and he just never returned. His body was found disfigured the next day in rural Fayette County. So if you start to notice, we didn't mention the location for the previous victim, but you'll start to notice that the serial killer was operating all over the Midwest. Yeah, and like partially in the South, and we'll get into why later. So October 3rd of 1992 was his next victim. His name was Delvoid Baker. He was just 14 years old, and he was found strangled with a cord, and his body had been dumped next to a dumpster in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, our next victim was found on October 23rd of 1982, and his name was Stephen Crockett. He was 19 years old, and he was stabbed multiple times. His body was left in a cornfield outside of Kanaki, Illinois, and his story did not receive any publicity outside of the county. That's just so sad to me. I think it's terrible, because I think the thing is, like, it's the, it's the worst because of the media, because media people will, like, only pick certain cases that they think are going to, like, be provoking for listeners and stuff, and, like, they're only going to pick really high-profile things and make them that way. I, I can't describe yeah. it. I'm trying to, like, like, I guess a 19-year-old man being found dead is not as high-profile as a little girl being found dead. Exactly, and I mean, I feel like this is a case that was just so important to cover to just show, like, that men can be kidnapped and murdered, too, and I feel like that's not very often talked about. It's not often talked about, and I actually feel bad because we haven't really talked about it too much, yeah. and that's what we're really going to try to do with this case is talk about an underrepresented community. And also try and do it more in the future. And... Let's get on to the next victim. So November 6th of 1982, Robert Foley, he actually has an unknown cause of death, and his body was found right outside of Juliet. And I don't really know what state that's from. Again, like, a lot of the information is very, very vague on a lot of these victims. It was probably Illinois, I think. I think the next couple of victims are all in Illinois. Yeah. So on December 25th of 1982, so Christmas Day, John Johnson was found. Yes, his name was John Johnson. <laughs> He was 25 years old. He disappeared from the Uptown District of Chicago, and his body was found two months after his disappearance in Lowell, Indiana. His body was so disfigured that it took actually seven months to identify him. Ugh. And I mean, two months after he was killed, I mean, that's probably like, he would have been far into the decomposing. Mm -hmm. And I also think that sticks out a little bit, because a lot of the victims we've talked about before, they disappeared and they were found the next day or in the next couple yeah. of days. And his sticks out a little bit because it took so long for it to be solved. Yeah. Okay, so December 28th of 1982, actually, two victims were found. John Roach and Stephen Aiken. So John Roach was 21, and he was found dead outside of Belleville. And there wasn't that much information on him, but Stephen Aiken was a little bit different. So he was 23, and he disappeared from Terre Haute. I think that's yeah, where he's in Indiana on December 19th of 1982. And he was later found in a woodland off of Indiana State Road 63 on December 28th. And he, like, actually his body was dumped next to, like, an abandoned building. It was actually on a farm. Like, clearly they had had the building and didn't really touch it. Like, maybe they just bought it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they actually, like, searched the building to see if there's any traces of blood or DNA, and they did find blood on the walls and on the ceiling, and additionally, the plaster on the walls was newly damaged, leading investigators to believe that he had been 
thrown against them and that he had potentially been hung from like part of the wall and like beaten there. Um, and apparent and actually a lot of the this specific criminals victims were all killed by like a perp- a perpetrator who demonstrated like enormous amounts of rage. Like the fact is all of these crimes have in common and the ones we're going to talk about in a minute like were all done by something like almost like they were all crimes of passion. And that's how they actually linked them later on. And that's why they were actually connected because they both had injuries to the abdomen and chest that were very similar. And that's really interesting too because usually in serial killers you see something that's very detached from their victims. Like that's actually the thing that makes it a difference and that's why they say crime of passion because that really discludes uh, the crime being committed by a serial killer. Mm -hmm. But I think it's almost like this guy's MO which is totally abnormal and strange. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's probably why it took them so long to connect a lot of these. But yeah. So over the next few months after that there were five unnamed victims and... Again, so there's very little research available to find on these victims, but I'm not sure if this means that they were unnamed for, like, their families didn't want them to be named, or if they were just John Doe's, but these victims were all found over the course of the following months, up into August of 1983, which is, again, so sad that we can't even, like, name them and give them some justice on this episode, but there were five unnamed victims, and that's important to know. And then on August 31st of 1983, Ralph Callis was found. He was missing for only 12 hours when his body was discovered in a field outside of Lake Forest, Illinois. That's insane. Like, 12 hours? Some people don't even get reported until, like, 24 hours later. I know. And, like, I think the reason he was found so quickly is that his, like, family started a search. That makes sense. Kind of prematurely to the police because they know it was so out of character for him. And he had actually been stabbed 11 times, again, going back to the crime of passion thing. So on October 4th of 1983, another body was found, and his name was Derek Hansen. He was 14 years old, and he was found dismembered outside of Kenosha, Wisconsin. 14? 14. This is a second 14-year-old. This is so sad. Not that age really determines sadness, but, like, 14 is younger than us. Yeah, I know. And I just, I don't know, it's just... It's so weird to me that this specific serial killer was more targeting, like, just men in general. Like, yeah, and it is it is a little weird that he, like, he does target young men, but he also targets, like, teenagers. Like, yeah, 14 years old is very young. I feel like you can't really be counted as a young adult until you're I know. at least 16 or 17. And not to mention, like, I feel like when you talk about serial killers, all of them are, all of their victims are very alike. Mm-hmm. Like, if you think about Ted Bundy's victims, they're all white women with brown hair. Like, if you look at the pictures, they all look very, very similar. And that's, I mean, that's alike to a lot of other serial killers. I just think this is... Yeah, and I think this guy did almost have a type. A lot of them were, like, bigger-looking guys, and they were often in their 20s. But there's there's a couple that just stick out to me, like, 14 years old. Like, 14 years old is, like, you're basically, like, pre-puberty still when you're a guy. Yeah. And, like, you're going to look, like, tiny, like a kid. And, like, that's a whole other type of victim profile. Exactly. And so October 15th of 1983, another John Doe was found. And he still hasn't been identified. That's insane. So three days later, only three days later, October 18th of 1983, there were four bodies found. 
and the four bodies were found like dumped together in an abandoned farm in Newton County, Indiana. They all had signs of rape, and one of their heads had actually been decapitated off of them. On December 5th of 1983, another John Doe was found. On December 7th of 1983, Richard Wayne and another John Doe were found, and they'd both been found dead outside of Indianapolis. Okay, so that is the extent to which of the victims we can really cover due to the fact that, like we said, there was very limited information on all of them. And I mean, we just thought it was like really important to include as many names and as much information we could just because like, it's important. It's important. And, and keep in mind, there are some supposed victims out there that we couldn't even identify. It's actually said that this serial killer in particular had 19 to 23 victims, which I don't even know how you have like a 19 to 20, like how do you have like a range that it could be, but so there's totally other victims out there that we were unable to identify, which is very sad. Yeah, and I mean, you never know, there could be more, like it's just, it's so, I don't know, it's just so utterly crazy to me, not to mention like there's literally no stuff on any of these murders. Yeah, and I think that actually goes to show, like I was saying again with the media, like no one wanted to cover this case because... A serial killer was attacking a like young men. That young, was not an yeah. interest. And he didn't really do anything that was like like I'm trying to think of an example. Like it wasn't he yeah. wasn't like a cannibal, so yeah, no. it didn't stick out to anybody. Exactly. Like they were all murders that were done that were just I guess they weren't like this is not a good phrasing, but like trademarked in a no, way. No, I know what you mean. Like, his M.O. was not, like, so strange and abnormal that it, like, stuck out. Like, it didn't get a lot of media attention. Like, they all seemed like crimes of passion, but they were all linked together, which I think is personally strange, but it wasn't, like, I guess it wasn't enough to get enough publicity on. Yeah. Okay, so, moving away from talking about the victims, let's get into the background of this case and of the criminal himself. So, after these numerous murders, they began connecting motives, cause of death, and victim type. Not to mention the location of the murders and how they were all specifically... Well, we didn't really get into this, but, like, a, a large majority of the victims had been stabbed in the chest, and a lot of them had actually been, like... They were all... They'd all been bludgeoned, too. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them had been strangled as well. They'd all been sexually assaulted, or most of them had yeah. been sexually assaulted or raped. And every single one of these murders had been done by someone who displayed a tremendous amount of rage. And I mean, when the police were investigating this, that was like their main thing. They were like, like Jillian was saying earlier, that's not normal for serial killers. Yeah, or like, really who the any hell is killer. this guy with this anger problem? Yeah, with this anger problem and just like literally over 20 victims in three years. It wasn't even, it was like two years. Like, that, that's so, that's literally, like, I just can't. Like, most serial killers will operate over a very long period of time with very specific MOs, and they're still not caught. And this guy, like, two years, he was on, like, a spree of anger. Yeah. And so they eventually connected these crimes to a man named Larry Eiler, who had been identified through some, like, weird-ass circumstances. So, on September 30th of 1983, Larry was arrested on a traffic violation. However, they brought him into the police station due to the fact that there was, like, another young man in the car who was, like, a hitchhiker, or who Larry said was a hitchhiker, and he was acting, like, very strangely. 
they don't really get into detail about this, but I can imagine he was probably kind of scared. Okay, that is, that's a weird, like, circumstance for me. Like, can, we, can you imagine, you're pulled over for traffic violation, right? So you're the cop here, and there's, like, this guy in the car, and he's like, oh, this is my hitchhiker. Yeah. And the guy is, like, the other guy looks completely, like, uncomfortable and nervous. Like, that yeah, seems exactly. so off. And, I mean, just think about it like this also, that traffic stop probably saved that guy's life. Probably. And so, following the arrest, they searched his truck. I mean, for anything weird... And they found rope, handcuffs, a hammer, two baseball bats, a mallet, and surgical tape. Oh, yeah. Totally normal things to just have in your car. Yeah. Totally normal. I mean, what? What? Why would you have that in your car unless you're like, I actually can't come up. Maybe you're like a psychotic carpenter, half baseball playing cop who likes to climb ropes. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so they um, they actually immediately alerted the task force that was in charge of the interstate killer's profile because they like they had known about this. They had started calling all of the connected murders the work of the interstate killer because, like I said, they were all off of the highway and they were all just like very like similarly done. Yeah, and they were starting to link them. It was starting to make sense to them. Yeah, not to mention, like, since a large majority of them were bludgeoned, like, the two baseball bats, a hammer, and a mallet, like, that's weird. Um, so they, like, interviewed him, and he fit their profile almost perfectly. Like, his lifestyle was the same, which we'll get into in a minute. So, and another thing is that he fit their profile, like, almost perfectly. His lifestyle was the same, which we'll get into in a minute. And the tools in his truck were the same as those used as some of the murder weapons in some of the cases. And his physique was the same as well. Can I just make a note? Like, what a what a hilariously, like, embarrassing way for a serial killer to go down. Like, some serial killers go out swinging and they just get caught on, like, their, like, 50th crime or something. And they're just like, you know what? I made it. I made yeah, my take goal. me to jail. Like... But this guy, like, he goes out with a traffic violation. Like, a freaking that's embarrassing. With a potential victim in his car. That's embarrassing. It wasn't, like, even, like, the victim was, like, I don't know, like, someone saw the victim and, like, called police. Oh, my God, I think we have the guy. No, this guy, like, literally, what was he doing? Speeding? Yeah. I don't even know. That's like, they never even included it. Like, what if his taillight was just out or something? Like, I just... This is such an insanely embarrassing way to get caught, but also, like... What a coincidence, and how good this is for the police. But, um, like, they, like, immediately think they have their guy, and they don't want to release him yet because they were afraid that he would attempt to get rid of evidence or flee. So they just, like, kind of had to keep him there and kind of act like, oh, it's this traffic violation. Oh, like, yeah. I can't tell you how many times I see them, like, people do that in Law and Order. Yeah. And then, eventually, when they had, like, talked to the other people, they were like, okay, we need to, like, start actually interviewing this guy on the murders. And they investigated him for, like, I don't know, like, a few days. And by then, they had, like, mounds and mounds of circumstantial evidence on this guy, again, for multiple of the murders. And, like, they only knew that they were going to get more stuff for more of them. And once, like... These men were all identified, and all of his victims, like, he had kind of talked about all of them in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, They knew that there were potentially, like, 19 to 23 of them, and of course they kind of had an idea because they had found the victims. And he committed the murders between 1982 to 1984, 
in Indiana and Illinois and all the surrounding areas. And I think at one point he even got down to, like, Kentucky at one point. I don't know. But um, he stabbed and most likely raped all of his victims. But he also dismembered a lot of them. And that happened more towards, like, the middle. And, I mean, you hear with, like, a lot of serial killers, maybe they tried to, like, try something different. Yeah, well, they try to work out, like, a very specific MO. Like, it takes... It almost, not to like make it sound like casual or anything, but it does take practice, I guess. And so they have to build up what they want to do and what yeah. their technique is going to be. Again, I'm not like justifying that with like casual conversation, <laughs> but like they do. They have to like build up in a way. Yeah. So we're going to just go ahead and start with a really in depth profile of Larry Eiler. And so before we start, we're going to call him Larry this entire time because this man deserves to be demeaned and nothing is more demeaning than having a name like Larry. Yeah, Larry is the worst. Like, have you ever seen that Mario Kart character named Larry? Just picture that when you talk about him because that's, yes. what, that's what we want you to think. Yeah, because actually, yeah. Larry just deserves to be completely humiliated. Exactly. So we're going to call him Larry this entire time. We're really going to rub it in. And while you're listening, I want you to Google a picture of Larry from Mario Kart so you can really just envision this guy. Yeah, even though he looks nothing like him, but we're going to go with it. <laughs> All right, so let's start with his childhood. He was born on December 21st of 1952 in Crawfordsville, Indiana. He was the youngest of four children, and his parents were divorced when he was young. Unfortunately, he had kind of a bad childhood, and he was often beaten by his stepfather while growing up. And then... In order to, like, like, just to add on to all of this trauma that he was dealing with as a child, during middle and high school, he realized that he was gay, and this was in the 80s, so it's, like, yeah, in the Midwest. I can imagine that probably was kind of difficult. I mean, it sounds really difficult. So, he was actually out to his family, so his family was, like, pretty chill with everything, which is good, but mm-hmm. he was not out to other people in his hometown, which, I mean, I guess that's good in a way, because, not good, but, like, it's good because no one was trying to, like do anything to him because yeah. they didn't know. And obviously, like, that must have been really hard for him because he didn't feel comfortable being himself in his hometown, which is really terrible. Yeah. And then in high school, he actually began to go to gay bars in Indianapolis. And <laughs> just the fact that, like, I just, like, I didn't even know that gay bars were a thing during the 80s. Of course they were. I know, but, like, I don't know. I just, I was very shocked when I heard this part of his little childhood Yeah, well, so he started to go into these gay bars, and he claimed that this was the first time he felt a sense of community, which, honestly, is horrifying for anyone who ever talked to him, because, like, can you imagine, like, you're going to these gay bars in Indianapolis in, like, the late 70s, early 80s, and, like, this guy who turns out to be a serial killer who, like, targets, like, men, big men, like... That's, like, kind of frightening. That's, like, you could have been his first victim and No, didn't know exactly. Him. Like, all of his friends who were, like... All of his friends who knew him, like, finding this out not that long after this. It's, like, horrifying. It's horrifying. So, he dropped out of high school his senior year and got a GED. Like, GED. I don't know why I stumbled over that. Anyway, he worked many odd jobs to support himself. And then... So, he actually tried to go to college a couple of times, which... I didn't even know he started with, like, the phrasing of this. Like, he did. He tried to go to college a couple of times, and he just couldn't do it. Like, he tried different places. He just... He just... College wasn't for him. Yeah, he started a couple of times and just dropped out and never earned a degree. And then in 1978, he moved to his hometown... Uh, or from his hometown to Chicago, Illinois. Okay, so I'm going to talk about his adulthood a little bit. 
Before murdering people. Um, yeah, before murdering people, and I'm guessing this was probably also happening while he was murdering people, but it's just, like, some of the stuff is... a little bit of a crossover period. Yeah, some of the stuff is just crazy. Like, the fact that this is our first episode that we're talking about, like, more serious stuff... No, this is, like, kind of weird for us. We no. haven't, like, I don't, there's no appropriate place to, like, make a joke or anything. No, it's And, like, not. that's my coping mechanism. Yeah, I know. That's the same with me, and that's, I feel like sometimes people need that during a true crime podcast, but, you know. We'll try to make we'll it a little bit light, but, Yeah, but know, it's hard. It's, it's hard. hard. We don't want to be inappropriate. Okay, so, overall, Larry was actually pretty well-liked by his peers, and he was arrested at one point. And his friends raised over $10,000 to pay off his bond in order to get him out of jail. Um, is it said while I was arrested? Because that was a weird transition. You were just like, oh yeah, he was well liked by his friends, but no. he was in jail. Like, I don't, I think it, I think it was literally something like very minor. I think it was maybe another traffic violation or something, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like, it was something that, you know how they hold you in a holding cell for yeah. like, it was something like that. Gotcha. And he ended up working at Marion County General Hospital for a while, but then he changed career paths and started working at a liquor slash shoe repair store. What? I don't think that was like a combo? Yeah, it's a combo. Like, hey, you can drink your whiskey while I fix your shoes. Hmm, that's hilarious. They still have shoe repair stores. I don't. I. Like, I, I mean, I imagine people still get their shoe repair. But, like, but I've I think seen one. usually, like shoe repair stores are like inside of shoe stores. Yeah. Like I know there's a store in like Atlanta that does that. Hmm. No, and I don't know. This is funny because like every time I picture a shoe repair store, I don't actually picture like a shoe repair store. I picture like you know like you'll be in the mall or like just random places will have them, <laughs> like where they have like shoe, shoe shining stations. Yeah. And, um, honestly, I think of, I don't know if you've seen this movie, but, um, Jillian and I are, like, avid fans of Adam Sandler. We love him. Or I love him. I love him. And there's a movie called The Cobbler, and he, like, fixes shoes. It's so good. It's basically about him, and, like, every, he uses this magic, like, shoe fix thing, and, like, when he puts all the people's shoes, he turns into them. Oh, God. It's amazing. It's amazing. That sounds stupid. That sounds like... Have you ever seen Click? That was a stupid Adam yeah, Sandler Click movie. Was, yeah, Click was really dumb. But, like, you know... If we was, ever take off, we're getting a separate show where we rate Adam Sandler movies. Yes. Yes. We're definitely doing that. So, moving on. Um, <laughs> Larry was known to his friends as a chill and overall nice guy. Um, yeah. Wow. So... <laughs> This is a really weird transition. However, they knew that in the bedroom, everything changed. That sounds dark and weird and creepy at the same time. What is? What does that mean? Well, <laughs> don't you have to? You have to say it. Okay, Larry was known to have a leather kink. <laughs> what does that even mean? I don't know. Tell me what you were telling me about that other guy with the satin kink the other day. Oh, okay. So, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this case. It's kind of a high-profile case. But the case of the Beaumont children in Australia, there's this guy who's, like, <laughs> they, like he's the biggest suspect, right? And but, Like, he died before he could get convicted or anything. But apparently he has this satin kink. And I, I heard all about this. And he, like, literally will, like has, like, a room. And, like, the sound of satin, like, turns him on. Isn't that so weird? A satin 
satin room in this like, house. What is up with people being attracted to fabric, especially like murders? That's a weird. That's a weird trait. That's not normal. That explains a lot about yeah, killing that people. It, yeah, maybe you're just mad because you're attracted to fabric. Yeah, exactly. This guy was just yeah. So, like, a lot of his sexual partners actually recounted their experiences with him being very violent in the bedroom. Like, I mean, we're not talking about, like, BDSM or anything. Like, he would literally choke them, like, fake bludgeon them. And, like, he would even cut his partner's chests with knives. Yeah. Like, why did what? nobody? Why did nobody How does that say not kill people? Yeah, I don't know. But like, why did nobody say anything earlier? This is that's this weird. This is too much. I, I'm gonna need a really light case after this. Yeah. I mean, and if you guys listened to the Patricia Maheen case last week, that was a lot lighter than this. Maybe if you haven't listened to that after this, but um, he had like he actually had a longtime partner named John. Okay, stay with me. Debrovlaskis. Oh, please! It's a Greek last name. I got it. Debrovlaskis. Debrovlaskis. Usually, I'm better at saying. Debrovlaskis. Debrovlaskis. Debrov. We're not gonna try anymore. Yeah, we're not gonna try. We're just gonna call him John. And John actually had a wife and multiple children. However, his wife knew about his like homosexual tendencies. You mean that he was gay? Yeah, that he was gay. And let John and Larry continue to see each other. Oh, you know, that's what does. It's like sanctioned adultery. Like, yeah. And I mean, honestly, like, this reminds me of when you watch, like, classical shows where it's like, oh, I know you're gay, but you have to stay married to me. Yeah. So, yeah. And actually, at one point, Larry lived in their house like a fucking stay-at-home nanny. No, literally, that's like, give me, like, there's that, what is that, like, a trope where people are always concerned, like, the nanny is gonna, like, cheat with the husband and, like, the <laughs> wife is just gonna be left. No, in this like, case, it was a shoe repairman. That's so weird. Yeah. Um, and... He lived there. Yeah, he like, lived there. Like, the kids, they were like a throuple, but not a throuple. Oh, my God. Okay, and let me just say... We are, we really are, we tried to make this case as serious as possible, we just needed to make fun of this guy, because he's sorry, just the it's worst. it's too much. Plus, all the victims and stuff that's so dark, and I feel so sad, but then, like, we can make fun of this guy, because he's a pathetic piece of shit. Yeah, exactly. We can make fun of him, because he deserves to rot in hell. So, at this time, I mean, Larry was living in a stable home, he had a well-paying job, a close group of friends... And, I mean, the closest thing to a long-term relationship that he would ever have. However, I mean, that was not enough. Dun-dun-dun. Now let's get into his murder spree. So this is getting dark again. But his murder spree began with an attempted murder in 1978. On August 3rd of 1978, he asked a man named Craig Long if he needed a ride. This, he ref- this guy refused because, you know... Like, stranger danger, even if you are a scary-looking adult man, like... Exactly! Like, take care of yourselves! Seriously, don't, like, I don't care who you are, I don't care how old you are, who, like, I just, I, I don't care. Don't like, everyone, cars just please be know. safe. Because once you're in the passenger seat of someone else's car, they have complete control of what happens to you. Exactly. And I mean, this is also goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about how, like... How he would literally, like, make people hitchhike. Like, it wasn't even like they were hitchhiking and he picked them up off the road. He would be like, hey, I can drive you. It's just, it's weird. And like, it's weird. Stranger, stranger danger. I don't care if you weren't taught in school, I'm going to teach you right now. 
Don't talk to strangers. Don't get in cars with strangers. I don't care if they have candy or fancy shoes. Don't get in the car. <laughs> I want to connect to the shoe thing. thing. I don't, don't get in the car. And I mean, like, just like, I want all of our male listeners to know, even, I know we don't have that many. <laughs> we don't have, like, any. I don't know who you're talking to. That you guys deserve to be safe and I know that society tells you that you're strong and you don't need to be scared or whatever but that's bullshit bullshit it totally is take care of yourselves and please lock your doors and don't go with anyone you don't know all right to proceed off of that he refused but then because of his refusal Larry (laughs) stabbed him in the chest what what yeah he the guy was just like no thank you and then Larry was just like pow Anyway, Long decided, because he was just a hella smart dude, to fake his death, and, like, Larry just left him to die on the side of the road, right? But he faked his death, and then he called for help. He, like, went to, like, this nearby farmhouse and was like, hey, someone just tried to murder me. Can you come, like, help me out? So then he ended up going to, like, the emergency room, obviously, because he needed some help. And, like, then, all of a sudden, this other guy shows up at the emergency room, and it was literally Larry, and he's like, hey, I'm injured, and then they're like, oh my god, were you the guy that, like, stabbed Stabbed this guy? And he's like, no, it was an accident. How do you stab someone on accident? Like, you're holding a knife, like, to your heart, and then all of a sudden you fall in the other direction? hey, look at my knife. Oh, I'm sorry, I fell into your chest. Hey, catch. I don't know, it's like, you don't accidentally stab somebody. That's so weird. And then the police were just like, sure, okay, bye. So I don't know what kind of police officers these were, because they were just like, oh yeah, sure, you can't, you can just accidentally stab someone. That's totally chill. So anyway, Larry Adler just goes on with his life after 1978. In the beginning of 1982, he began brutally raping and murdering young men, and they were unable to identify him, but by 1984, there had been at least 21 victims. It is actually theorized that he attempted to kill because of his internalized homophobia towards himself, which would explain a lot of the rage. Yeah. And it's a little bit tough to follow, but like I said, like, it was internalized self-hate at himself, but this provoked him to, like, literally kill other people. Like, he was so angry at himself that he wanted to... Like, kind of resented the fact that he was gay. Yeah, and he just, I guess he needed an outlet for his anger, but that's totally just not excused, the fact that he killed, Yeah, that's, like, like, whatsoever. so, I mean, also, like, th- just the fact that if they would have arrested this guy and, like, at least put him in jail or, like, put him on parole, like, he probably wouldn't have ended up killing that many young men and adult male. Like, as much as it's, like, nice to think that it all could have been prevented, what happened happened, unfortunately, and you'll see at this end of this very episode that he got what he deserved. Yeah. So, after he was caught... He was, not shockingly, convicted and sent to prison where he would be for the rest of his life. And I'm not actually sure how long he was sentenced for. I'm guessing it was multiple life sentences. But in 1994, he died of AIDS in prison. So, he did good. He got the ending. Yeah. He was sick and he died in prison. Good riddance. After living in prison for 10 years. I would have liked to see him in prison for a little bit longer, but, you know, good riddance. The world was a better place after Larry Eiler was gone. Yeah. So, 
This was the extremely dark story of Larry Eiler and all of his victims. Make sure to share all of your thoughts with us on Instagram, tgic.podcast, and our blog. Please check out our blog. Like, we just made it. And we, yeah. Like, we really want to talk to you guys yeah. about what you think about our cases. Exactly. That's why we made it. We want you to engage with other listeners, and we want to talk to you about what you think happened in the case. So, please, go check out our blog. It's linked on our Instagram and on our website. And tune in next week. And, I mean, also, just, like, just tell us, first off, how you like this format. Because it was something new. And we want to know if you guys want more of this in the future. Um, But, yeah, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.